0: Mary, how are you? Dave, good to see you guys. Mike? Well, good morning. Welcome uh, to Genesis. If this is uh, your first time here, uh, my name is uh, Michael, and I'm glad uh, that you are able to come out uh, with us. This is uh, Palm Sunday, which just means the start of Holy Week, and uh, there's going to be a lot of things happening here uh, at Genesis uh, over this next week, and I just wanted to highlight, um, uh, really, a few things. Uh, We've got a Good Friday service um, on Friday, I know ingenious. so Friday at eight o'clock, uh, that would be in the pm uh, we 're going to gather here uh, this coming Friday at eight o'clock uh, for uh, a remembrance, and uh, when I say remembrance, it will be a pretty intense uh, service because we will be celebrating um, the death of Jesus, and it was a very brutal murder murder that took place about two thousand years ago, and uh, we are going to remember uh, what Jesus did. Uh, for us, and so this coming Friday, at eight o'clock, uh, the following uh, Sunday, just two days later we 're going to have our Easter celebration uh, service and this is our first Easter uh, as a community we 're pretty excited about it it 's our first Easter in this uh, place, and so church normally starts at ten thirty ish and um, ish means it just gives you about ten minutes you know to, to fudge a little bit. Um, but at nine thirty, I invite you guys to come an hour early. Uh, We're going to have a quasi-breakfast brunch type of a thing. Uh, We're going to have some pastries and quiches and, you know, all of a bunch of baked goods. So from 9.30 to 10.30, we'll have some juice and drinks and, you know, uh, just have an Easter breakfast uh, together. If you're a a child under the age of eight, uh, we're going to have a fun Easter egg hunt just for you. And yes, in one of the Easter eggs will be a gift card just for you to Chipotle, so you can take... (laughs) Your parents with you to Chipotle. Uh, So this is uh, next uh, Sunday at 9.30 and then service time at uh, 10.30. So please uh, remember that. Uh, Fellas, tonight at 6.30, we're going to be doing our second uh, installment of Fight Club. And uh, if you were not here last time, we had about 30 guys who came uh, to our first Fight Club. And this is really a time of uh, training men how to be not just men, but training men how to be godly men and live very different in the world Uh, We live in. So that's uh, tonight at uh, 6.30. Uh, I know you probably won't remember this uh, when you leave here, but I just want to plant a seed. Uh, As you know, uh, many of you might know, we are a brand new church. Uh, We just got started this past September, and one of the things that we've been really thinking about and praying into is how can we really bless and engage the community around us, specifically Woburn, uh, but also the towns around us. And so On Saturday, May 22nd, we're going to do our first thing uh, as an entire church that's really trying to bless uh, and serve and give uh, to the community around us. Usually in spring, it gets a little warm and people open up their garages, sell their junk for a ridiculous price, and we get excited to go buy other people's junk. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to bring all of our stuff here that we would normally give or sell at a garage sale, and uh, we're going to give it away. Uh, So on Saturday, May 22nd, uh, we're going to do a good job of promoting this, as it were, so people from all over the place would hear uh, that come here on Saturday, May 22nd, and uh, we as a church are going to give all of our stuff away, and hopefully it's not just going to be our junk that we haven't used in 10 years. Uh, Hopefully it will be some nice stuff that we'd actually want to bless people with. So we're giving everything away, there will be no charge uh, for anything, and then when kids and families come in here, we're going to turn this place into a bit of a carnival, and uh, so parents can hang out outside and get things that they need for their family, and their kids can be inside uh, on some of those jump machines and getting their faces painted and all of that kind of good stuff. So that's Saturday, May 22nd. All right, we're starting a brand new series, it's just a three-part series this morning, Good Friday, and then Easter. And the series is just called 911. And how many people have ever had to make a phone call to 911? Okay. All right. That's more than I actually thought. Uh, If you've actually had to dial those numbers, you wouldn't ever dial those numbers unless there was obviously uh, an emergency. And so uh, adrenaline's probably pumping and flowing, and it's got to be, I've never had to call 911. I used to be uh, in charge of a pool at a country club, and I've had to tell people to call 911, but I never myself made the phone call. But uh, this week, it was uh, fun learning a little bit about 911. 1937, the Brits, those are the ones who actually invented uh, the first emergency number, and the emergency number was 999 in 1937. The U.S. thought, wow, this is brilliant. We should try something like this. But it took us 20 years uh, to come up with our way of doing it. So in 1957, that's when our government said, hey, this is a good thing. We should look at, you know, getting ourselves three digits for an emergency. 1967. So it took 10 years for them to figure out, hey, what are we going to do and how can we do this and which three numbers should we pick? 1968. A solution was created by, yes, AT&T. AT&T are the ones that actually came up with the three digits, 911. And the very first emergency phone call dialed 911 placed in the United States was on February sixteenth, nineteen 1968, in Haleyville, Alabama. Anyone from Alabama? All right. So we can make fun of Alabama. Um, <laughs> 1968, Haleyville, Alabama. They were the first. All right. Every year, okay, this is annually, there are 240 million calls to 911 each year. 240 million, just nationally, this is not international numbers, 657,000 calls made to 911 every single day. That's 456 calls per minute. So in the next hour of us gathering like this, there will be roughly a little over 27,000 phone calls made to 911. When I saw that, I was like, wow. I knew the number would be high. I figured it would be high. But to think that in the next hour, there would be 27,000 people across our country dialing 911. Now, sometimes people call 911 because there's a legit emergency. <clears throat> Someone's having a heart attack. There's been a car accident. You're on fire. Uh, good reasons to call 911. <clears throat> these are some not-so-good reasons to call 911. All right, this is right, we're not going to read all of these, but I'll pick my favorites. Number one, a Florida woman called 911 saying that she was stuck inside her car with the windows up at a Walgreens parking lot. Her engine wouldn't start, and it was getting hot, and so she called 911 to find out what should I do. The 911 operator's advice, just unlock the door and then pull the handle. <laughs> she, she got out. <laughs> it worked. Memorial Day, 2009. A young man uh, from Aloha, Oregon, called 911 with an unusual complaint. A box of orange juice had been omitted from his younger brother's orders at McDonald's, at the, when his brother ordered, at McDonald's, they forgot to put in the orange juice. Upset that the teller declined to rectify the alleged mistake, he called 911 to send the police to make sure that his brother would get the orange juice in his order. This is a cute one. A little boy, four years old, or a little girl, actually, four years old, needed help with some math, and so she dialed 911 <laughs> to find out. Uh, some subtraction problems, um, and 911 actually helped her. Um, I thought this one was good. An Ohio man called 911 in May 2009 after his live-in adult son refused to clean his messy bedroom. Andrew, a 28-year-old member of uh, the Bedford school board, lived in his father's basement and was reportedly crying uncontrollably when he promised police he would clean his room. The police actually came. Um, ladies, this is kind of funny. Uh, after police officers visited Lorna I'll leave her last name out, just you know, just in case you Google her later um, home in 2006 and asked her to turn down her music, this apparently lonesome 45-year-old woman called 911 to ask dispatchers to send one of the officers back. And I quote, he was the cutest cop I've ever seen in Lord knows how long, she confided in the dispatcher. Um, it's not every day that a good-looking man comes to your doorstep. So she called 911 to find out if they could send this person back. A female called 911 to request a police officer come to her residence to change the battery in her smoke detector because she couldn't reach it. Uh, all right, this one, this one's good. Okay, two more. Uh, I'm going to read verbatim here the uh, the dialogue here between the 911 dispatcher and the woman. Dispatcher, Sheriff's Department, 911, how can I help you? Woman, yeah, I'm over here. Um, over here, Burger King, right here in San Clemente. Dispatcher, uh-huh. Woman? um, No, 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 not San Clemente. I'm sorry. I live in San Clemente. I mean Laguna. I think that's where I'm at. Okay. How can I help you? Woman, I'm at a drive-thru right now. Okay. Well, I went and I I ordered my food three times. They're mopping the floor inside, and I understand that they're busy. They're not even busy. Okay. I've been the only car here I asked them four different times to make me a Western barbecue burger. Okay. And they keep giving me a hamburger with lettuce, tomato, and cheese, onions. And I said, I'm not leaving until I get my Western barbecue burger. The dispatcher says, "Uh uh-huh. Woman, I want a bacon Western burger because I just got my kids from Taekwondo and they're hungry. I'm on my way home and I live in San Clemente. Uh Uh-huh. Woman, okay, she said. She gave me another hamburger, but it's wrong. I said four times. I said I want it to go. Can you go out and park in the front? And this conversation with this lady goes on for a while. The dispatcher, okay, what exactly is it you want us to do for you? I send an officer down here. I want them to make me. And then the dispatcher interrupts. Ma'am, we're not going down there and enforce your Western bacon cheeseburger. And the woman says... Well, what am I supposed to do? And the dispatcher says, this is, well, this is between you and the manager. We're not going to go and enforce how to make a hamburger. That's not a criminal issue. There's nothing, (laughs) there's nothing that's criminal here. So I just stand here and I just sit here. And the dispatcher said, you, you need to calmly and rationally speak to the manager and figure out what to do between you and the manager. Goes on for a little bit. This was one of my favorite. I'll let you listen to this nine one one call. And uh, this was my favorite. this is I been terribly upset, and I thought the only thing I could do, I don't think of sleep pills and all of that, I went out and bought myself a couple of small bottles of beer. I thought that would relax me. What's the problem? The problem is, I can't open the bottle. Could you send a man over, and I'll be downstairs, and have him open the bottle. Okay, now, wait a minute. Okay, wait a minute. Am I correct that you can't sleep, so you went out and bought two bottles of beer, and you want a policeman to come by and open them for you? Yes, please, because I don't have any equipment here that seems to handle that kind of a top, and uh, I, I have never gone in. I think I had a ketchup bottle once, and uh, a neighbor broke the top off. Oh, my God. Well, listen, I'm going to get you someone out there to open those beer bottles for you. What's your name, dear? All my name, right. right. His name is Elizabeth, and 911 apparently actually sent her, uh, a police officer, to open uh, the bottles of beer. 240 million calls per year, uh, roughly 27,000 plus uh, in the next hour. Those are obviously some goofy um, 911 calls that were made. Um, But in thinking about how many calls are made, I started thinking about why are there so many 911s? Why are there so many 27,000 people in the next hour alone will dial those numbers uh, because there's some... I'm going to guess that not all of them are beer bottle-related or hamburger-related, but it's a lot of people who are calling 911. As I started thinking about that, I just asked a very simple, basic question of, what is wrong with the world that we live in? What is wrong that it's just so messed up and so broken, so much violence or pain or suffering or just greed? I mean, you can just watch headline news, read the paper, Uh, and there's just so much, it's just so messed up. And why is it that there's just so much 911 going on in our culture? Now, it's easy for me to look out at the world and just say, well, the world is ultimately just really jacked up. It's very messed up. Uh, Everyone else has all of these issues, and so much violence, and hatred, and racism, and uh, just so much abuse. But Every time I look out, it avoids me doing something um, that I don't like to do. It avoids me just looking at the man in the mirror every day and saying, well, what's wrong with you? It's always easy to look out and say, what's wrong with the world I live in? What's wrong with everyone else? So this and so that and so whatever. But it's hard for me when I look in the mirror every day. I have to ask the question, but what is wrong with you? So much just selfishness. So much arrogance, so much pride, so much lust, so much self-centeredness. What is wrong with me? I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that question, but I want you to ask that question today, and it's a very simple question of, how did I get like this? As you sit here today, how did you get like this? And some people would have to say this, meaning so jaded, so bitter, so hurt, so angry, so cynical, so selfish, so self-absorbed. Like, what road did I walk down to get to this place today where I'm like this? Now, I know some of us would say, well, I'm really not that self-absorbed. I'm really not that self-centered. Consider this. Silly example, but I think we all do it. You're looking at a picture, okay? It's a group picture. When you look at a group picture, who's the first face you always look for? You always look for yourself first. Why is that? When you get a picture, you're flipping through someone's you know, pictures that they took and you know you were there, you look at the picture first to see, am I in it? And then you look at it secondly to see, how do I look? And if I'm not in it and if I don't look good, what do we say about that picture? Throw it away, that's a dumb picture. Forget like the 15 other people in the picture, that's a terrible picture. Well, why is it? Because I don't look good. So clearly, 15 other people look great, but I don't. So just rip it up and throw it away. I realize that is a bit of a silly uh, example, but what's wrong with us? That we're so consumed with us, consumed with self. I know some of us might give some kickback and say, okay, I get that. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm really not that bad. And for some reason, uh, serial killers, axe murderers, and rapists usually follow in that sentence. Well, I'm not like a serial killer. I'm not like a rapist, and I'm, I'm not like an axe murderer. I don't know why axe murderers get thrown in that sentence a lot, but we think of axe murderers. Well, I'm not like that. It's interesting. Whenever we compare ourselves to someone else, we always compare ourselves down. We always compare ourselves to... Like the criminals, people who are, well, I'm not like that guy. And the reason we always compare ourselves downward rather than upward, as it were, is we want to appear better than we know ourselves actually to be. This is the question that I want to really hone in on today is not why is the world so messed up, but why are we so messed up? Like, what is it about me, what is it about you, What happened to us? There was a Roman governor, uh, Cicero. This was a quote that I smiled and laughed at, but I was like, wow, he's on to something. Cicero said this, man is a disaster. He looked out at humanity and he just said, man is a disaster. Blaise Pascal, French apologist, uh, many things. He says, what sort of freak then is man? How novel How monstrous, how chaotic, how paradoxical, how prodigous, judge of all things, feeble earthworm, repository of truth, sink of doubt and air, glory, and refuse of the universe. I can't really argue with Blaze and certainly with Cicero. It just comes back to the question of what happened to us. I believe we were created by God for God, and we were created in God's image. Created by God, for God, to know God, to be in relationship with God, and all of humanity, no matter who you are, what your background is, what your ethnicity is, every one of us bears the image of God on our lives. So how is it possible that we got so selfish, so self-centered, so prideful, so arrogant, I don't know if many of you, I'm, I'm suspecting you would, remember back in 1999, there was a tragic, and this was one of many uh, that had happened, uh, but there was a tragic school shooting in Columbine that year. There was 13 students who were killed, one teacher and the two boys who executed uh, the serial killing uh, committed suicide. So there was 15, 16 people who died, and the world at least American world, was asking this question, what is wrong with the world we live in? How could something like this happen? And there was speculation, well, it's all these video games, and the gun laws aren't strict enough, and there's this, and there's that. And Larry King, who is a CNN correspondent uh, on his show called Larry King, was interviewing Billy Graham. If you're not familiar with Billy Graham, he's uh, a man who's loved God for better part of his life, and has introduced a lot of people to Jesus. And he asked Billy Graham, Billy Graham, what is wrong with the world in that we live in that something like this could happen? And I liked Billy Graham's response. He said this, thousands of years ago, a young couple in love lived in a garden called Eden. And God placed a tree in the garden and told them not to eat from the tree. On CNN, live television, this was Billy Graham's response to Larry King's question of why is the world so messed up? And Billy Graham took Larry King and anyone who was watching and listening that day back to the point of where there was two young kids, Adam and Eve, God placed them in a garden and they made a decision and rebelled against God. My question, is it really possible that one decision to rebel against God thousands of years ago has led to all of this. D.A. Carson is a uh, a professor at a seminary I went to back in Chicago, and uh, this is something that he said. The hardest truth to get across to this generation, and he's not talking about, he's talking about people on the planet now. The hardest truth to get across to this generation is what the Bible says about sin, specifically how ugly our sin is to God. This is one of those messages, the message title is, We Need a Savior. And so I know you can sit through, and if you've been to church, you're like, oh, great, another message on sin. Or you're like, wow, this is the first time, and I'm already getting accused or being told that I've got sin in my life. The hardest truth to get across to people is is what the Bible says about sin, specifically how ugly our sin is to God. I wonder if we get so offended when anyone even brings up sin for the very reason we know it's true. And we just don't like people pointing out to us the obvious thing uh, is that I am, bless you, a sinner who sins. Question is, you could probably name sins And you name, you know, the axe murderer, he'd probably be on the list. Any other type of, you know, adulterer, someone who's cheated on their spouse, anyone who's lied. You know, we come up with a list of what sins are, but I want to ask the question, what does actually sin mean? Two verses that answer that question. Proverbs, a great, great book on wisdom, says this, it is not good to have zeal without knowledge nor to be hasty and miss the way. One more verse. Judges chapter 20, verse 16. I'm asking the question, what is sin? Judges says this. Among all these soldiers, there were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Okay, how many left-handed? I'm left-handed. Anyone else? This is our verse. Memorize it. This is good, okay? Right-handed people, you're not like these left-handed people here, okay? Among all these soldiers, there were 700 chosen men who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. We were deadly with our accuracy. Amen to left-handed people. (laughs) Did you catch the definition of what sin is? Okay? Proverbs says, To be hasty and miss the way. Judges says, of each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Sin is this: it's missing the way. That's what sin is. I'm not trying to name sins, I just want to identify and define what sin is. Archers understand this terminology. So if you've ever seen an archery tournament on ESPN 8 at like two in the morning, you have guys who will shoot at the target. And there's a little bullseye, usually red. If the arrow does not hit dead center, the judge of the tournament will look, inspect, and if it's not inside the red, not a bullseye, he'll raise his hand and he'll say sin to this day. Why? Because he missed the mark. Bullseye means perfection. So every time you hit perfection, there's no need to raise your hand for, if you're a judge and say Sin. This is what sin is. This is how the Bible defines sin. We miss the way, meaning God has a way for us to relate with Him. God has a way for us to live, to be in relationship with one another. He's holy, He's perfect, and He calls us to be absolutely holy and to be absolutely perfect. Anything short of holiness, anything short of perfection is sin. It's that simple. Now, most of us, I have not yet anyone, uh, and haven't met everyone, but I haven't met anyone yet who would actually argue a case that says, you just don't know me, I'm perfect. And if they actually did try to make an argument that they were perfect, I'm saying, well, I probably don't wanna know you because I'd mess up your perfection. I've never met someone who argues a case that they are perfect. But what people typically argue for is, okay, I get it. I get that I sin, but you just don't understand my sin is not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. Or we dismiss the severity of how sinful we actually are. J.A. Packer said this about sin. And see if you actually relate with this. I know I do. We have a proud, unbelieving, thoughtless, careless, greedy, self-serving spirit. We live to please ourselves, and in our hearts, we keep God at bay. Our egocentric, anti-God attitude seeks to play God, use God, fool God, and fight God all at the same time. I've been there. I've done that. I do that. Sin is just simply missing the way. Every time I miss perfection, which is all the time, sin. That's it. Bible makes clear what I've tried to already share with you is that no one's perfect, like none of us. None of us could ever say, look at my life, and I'm without sin. I've hit the mark, bullseye, every single time. 24-7, watch me, observe me, listen to me and you'll see perfection. No one could could do that, and Scripture affirms that. This is Ecclesiastes. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. There's no one, none of us could ever stand up and say, I'd never sin. Psalm 14, the Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any, any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. G.K. Chesterton, another author, uh, writer says this, original sin is the one Christian truth that can be verified by observation anywhere in the world, any day of the week. Like, if you have struggled to think or believe that what the Bible says about sin is true, just watch people long enough and be like, oh, I see it. And rather than looking out, look in the mirror long enough and be like, oh, I see it there too. I really don't feel like I have to try to convince you that none of us are, 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 we're not perfect or none of us are without sin. But what I think we err on the side of is we downplay how sinful we are. And if you downplay your sin, what will happen is you'll downplay your need for a Savior. If we don't get just how sinful we are and how horrific our sin is, we just will never cry out in desperation for a Savior who can save us from sin. The Savior will be much like the AAA guy. You ever call AAA? I ran out of gas. I locked my keys in my car. I'm locked inside my car. I don't know how to get out. My tire's flat. And we call the AAA guy and say, can you just fix me up real quick so I can get back on the road? I think that's the kind of Savior most of us want. Just touch me up, fix me up, fill me up, put some air in me, and I'll go. And when I get busted and broken down again, I'll call you. But until then, I'm fine. If we downplay sin, we will downplay the Savior. Message today, Palm Sunday, is we need a Savior. I just want to ask why. Why do we need a Savior? This is the story of Adam and Eve when sin was introduced into humanity through them. Genesis chapter 2, verse 9 says this God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. I preface Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, to remind us that God had made everything and it was good, it was perfect. And then verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. God made everything that was good, everything that was perfect. He says in verse 9, everything that was pleasing to the eye. Verse 16, God commanded man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. We are like little kids this is one of those things that we never seem to grow out of. When someone tells me I can't do something, have something, I get fixated on that something. What? I can't, you can have everything else but that one thing. And you quickly forget the freedom that you have to have everything, everything that was good for food and pleasing to the eye. God says, it is all for you from me, for your enjoyment, for your good, for your benefit. Well, forget that. You don't want me to have that? I want that. I wonder if it's ever occurred to us that the very reason that God doesn't want to want us to have that is because it would kill us. It would harm us. It would not be for our good, and it would not be for our benefit. I tried to teach this to my kids. But dad, the, the, the stove, it just, it's red, it's shiny. I, I know, you, you put your hand on it, it will hurt. No, but it looks, don't do it. And so I, after a while, I'm like, oh, go ahead and touch it. Find out. I'm just kidding, I don't do that. <laughs> Never done that. You can look at my kids' hands, they're not burned. But how often I try to tell them and teach them something, if you do that, it will not go well for you. It will harm you, it will hurt you. This was the command given. Adam, if you eat of this one tree, it won't go well for you. You will die. Everything else, Adam, brings life is for your good. Genesis 3, 6, one of the most tragic verses in scripture. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband, who was just standing there silently, not saying a thing. That's inserted by me. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. I think one of the more tragic verses in Scripture is Genesis 3, verse 6, the back half. She took some, and she ate it, and she gave it to her husband, who was just standing there. They had everything, but they grabbed for what God said, it's not for you to grab. I asked the question, why did they, and I have to ask, why do I, why do you, why do we grab? I've got two answers. We will get that which God is refusing to give. We're so bent that God doesn't have good in mind for us that we grab what he will not give. I see this in relationships a lot. There are people that God has said, it's not your time to get married. And they become so bent on, I must have this relationship. I need this relationship. This will bring happiness and peace and joy and fulfillment and satisfaction. And God's saying, no, you don't know joy meaning satisfaction and fulfillment. Not now. God, you don't know. And so we grab. Only to come back months later, years later, devastated and broken by that very thing that we grabbed. Second reason why we grab is because we want to be God. We don't want to be like God, we want to be God. Meaning, we don't want anyone else telling me, telling you, what you can do and what you can't do. How you should do it and when you should do it and how often you should do it. We want to be God. It's a good thing to be like God, to pursue holiness and righteousness. It is a sinful thing, a horrific thing, when you said in your mind, in your heart, that you are God. You're in control. You're sovereign. No one's going to tell you what to do and when to do it. What happened when they grabbed? Genesis 3. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees trees of the garden. Two things specifically that happened when they grabbed. First one is their eyes were opened and they were exposed. Nakedness is not that they just looked at themselves and said, oh my goodness. I don't have any clothing on. What shall I do now? They were absolutely exposed. Do you know that you were not created to ever experience guilt or shame or fear or insecurity? We were created to be absolutely free of guilt and shame, fear and insecurity. As soon as they grabbed, their eyes were opened and they were exposed. And what flooded in was fear and guilt and shame and insecurity. Their eyes were open. And I think when they grabbed the second thing that was happened, that happened was stupidity was introduced to man. <laughs> For some reason, their eyes were open. And then as soon as their eyes were open, they just, they got stupid. And they're like, we're naked. And they're looking around. Well, we're in a garden. This is a picture of a fig leaf. And I would have loved to see... Um, I think we have a picture of a fig leaf. Imagine what a fig leaf would look like. And the fig leaf, they're looking around, and they just start scrambling. Like, if we tie these together or somehow sew them together to try to cover ourselves, I just imagine the conversation back and forth between Adam and Eve. Here's our fig leaf. Okay? Fig leaves are not, unless back in the garden, they were like, you know, fig, fig leaves on steroids. They're not that big. And I can just imagine, hey, just grab as many leaves as you can. We don't have duct tape, so we'll just have to tie these things together. How absolutely silly and ridiculous they looked. I know in modern art, ancient art, we see fig leaves strategically placed on certain anatomical parts of the body. I don't think that's what it looked like. They didn't make, like Eve didn't have a fig leaf bikini. I think they were just putting fig leaves everywhere everywhere. How silly they looked. They got stupid. Somehow they thought, in my nakedness, in my being exposed, I I just need to try to cover myself. And not only did they try to cover themselves, someone came up with a genius idea of, well, let's hide. I hear God coming. What should we do? Well, that looks like a pretty good-sized tree. You take that one, and I'll take that one. Like, did it ever occur to them how silly they must have looked hiding behind a tree with fig leaves all over them? I'm making fun here, but I do the same thing. My sin's not that bad, but I try to cover myself with, what, good works, my own acts of righteousness, my thoughts of being religious. My good works, we may have evolved from fig leaves, but we do the same thing. We get stupid and think that we can cover ourselves. Somehow, maybe God will not see our full exposure. And then we honestly think to ourselves, I can hide from God. Some of us hide from God. You know where we hide most? In the church. We hide from God in the church thinking, well, he's not going to see me there. I'll just blend in with a bunch of other people, and he won't notice me there. I'll give a little bit. I'll sing a little bit. I'll pay attention a little bit. He won't notice me. I'll fly under the radar. Something happened when they grabbed, their eyes were opened, and they got really stupid. This is Genesis uh, chapter 3, verse 9 and 11. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered. Let me preface real quick. As far as I know, there's two people on the planet and God. God was not thinking, how did I misplace those humans? Like he was not thinking to himself, this game of hide and seek has gone on too long. Please, Aliaksin free, it's safe to come out. (laughs) He did not lose them, okay? He knew exactly where they were. He answered, well, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? What a great question. Who told you that you were naked? Who told you to be filled with shame and fear, insecurity and guilt? Who told you that? And then no answer to that question, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? I love that as soon as sin enters the world, God comes seeking. And from Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 22... God is a God who is bent on seeking those that have sinned. The mission and the message of the Bible from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22 is God seeking out, offering salvation to sinners. That's the rest of the message of the Bible. If you want to know how to sum up the Bible, God saves sinners. Genesis 3, we only get two chapters where sin was not present. It must have been amazing. We've got over, I think, 1, 1,400 chapters of God's story of seeking to save sinners. There's three questions that God asked man Where are you? Well, I'm hiding. Why, why are you hiding? Because I'm afraid. He comes back and says, Who told you that you were naked? No answer. Their fig leaf on it obviously didn't work out. Because God didn't be like, wow, that's creative. He saw their nakedness. Why are you naked and who told you you're naked? And then the third question, have you eaten? And that's another way of God saying, did you rebel? Did you rebel? I laid out the way for you. It was the first time God had to raise his hand and just say sin. The tragedy of this day is sin enters the world. The beauty of this day is as soon as sin enters the world, I do believe that on the horizon that night was a picture, a shadow of the cross. From that point on, God would be bent on saving sinners. God didn't ask Adam these three questions because he didn't know the answer. He was asking these questions as a way to lead Adam and Eve to their full awareness of what they had done, of how much they had sinned. You know, in the news recently, you see guys like Tiger Woods, The count is up to 15. Sandra Bullock's marriage is now falling apart. I think his name is Jesse James. Currently, there's about four women. These are just famous people. Thank God that no cameras are on any of us. I wonder if at any point, if a guy like Tiger or Jesse looked down the quarters of time and saw how much devastation and destruction his choice to rebel if he would have done it. This is one of the things that sin does. Our eyes get opened, but then we get really blind to where the road called sin actually leads. Rebellion costs them life, okay? They would experience death. Adam and Eve were created to live forever, but God said, if you eat of it, you're gonna die. And they did experience death. And then secondly, the rebellion against God caused them separation. The first homeless couple was Adam and Eve. They were kicked out of the garden, not to live in a spacious, like they didn't, you know, they didn't uh, upgrade. They went to live in the desert. Can you imagine of being on the outside of the desert looking into all of the trees and all of the fruit and all of the good things that God said, this is yours. And now you're in the desert where there's nothing and you're looking in. Not only was there a spatial separation, there was a spiritual separation. They couldn't walk with God in the cool of the garden as they once had. Why? Because holiness and sin, they don't marry at all. They are so different. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 5. He says, therefore, just as sin... Entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. Paul's point, sin entered the world through one man. It so corrupted the rest of humanity that all of us followed in that example of rebelling against God. Sin not only impacted Adam and Eve, but you and I. Why did it impact us? Simple point, sinners sin. We are sinners and sinners sin, simply put, because I am a sinner and because I'm a sinner who sins, I'm separated from God. Why do you need a Savior? Because of sin and sin separated you and I from God. If you're ever curious and wondering, if you have people who ask you, why do you need a Savior? Because I'm a sinner who sins. That's why I need a Savior. Three questions in these three verses. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? That's Romans 7. Acts chapter 2, after hearing a phenomenal message on what humanity did to Jesus when they nailed him to a cross. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to P- Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Acts chapter 16, a jailer who is overseeing and watching the apostle Paul and his companion Silas. When, or he then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Three different examples, three different people. Paul, what a wretched man I am. The crowds, thousands of people coming to Peter and the apostles, what are we supposed to do? A jailer coming to Peter, what must I do? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever been so hit, wrecked, run over by your sin, where you just say, God, what am I supposed to do? I don't know, I can't generalize for you. I'll speak for me. I don't know how much my sin has utterly broken me where I've wept on my knees. God, what am I to do? I am a wretched man. It takes a humble man to say that he's a wretched man. It takes a prideful man to say I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. People who ask these questions of, what a wretched man, who will rescue me? And you know, what am I supposed to do? And how, must, how can I be saved? These questions are coming from people who have come to grips not only with the horror of their sin, but with the reality of this. You can't save yourself. These three individuals, three groups, came to the reality, I can't save myself. The question is not how much do you sin. The question is not like, how often do you sin? The question is not, how bad is your sin? That's what we focus on. That's the wrong focus. The question needs to be, who is going to rescue me from my sin? Not how often, not how bad, but who will rescue me from my sin? Sin brings guilt, shame, death, separation, the wrath of God. Meaning, sin is punished by death. That's what the promise was in the Old Testament. I think one of the hardest things that Jesus ever said to a group of religious leaders was in John chapter 8, verse 24 I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. There is nothing more dreadful, nothing more fearful than a man or a woman who dies in their sin. Someone who dies in their sin is not someone who has accepted that there is a savior for sin. How horrific, how tragic to get to the end of your life still dead in sin because you don't have a savior. Jesus spoke more about the sorrows of hell than he did the joys of heaven. Do you know why? Because hell is real, hell is really, really hot, and hell is forever. Jesus warned people, Jesus preached and taught people of the reality that if your sins are not forgiven, the wrath of God remains on you. This is what Jesus says to religious people, the the Pharisees, the priests. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being consumed being condemned to hell. This was Jesus's question. What do you mean? How could I? I'm a righteous person. I'm a religious person. I'm a spiritual person. Jesus comes to them and says, you are a snake. You're a brood of poisonous vipers. What a powerful, potent question. How will you escape being condemned to hell? The Puritans understood hell, I think, really, really well. Thomas Watson said this. He's a Puritan pastor. Thus it is in hell. They would die, but they cannot. The wicked shall be always dying, but never dead. I know personally I've not done our church justice by speaking enough about the realities of hell. Those who die in their sins, the wrath of God is still on them. But what I am so thankful for is as soon as man sinned, God said, I am going to save. God's mission was to seek and save sinners. And this mission took flesh and blood when Jesus showed up. A few verses on what scripture clearly teaches again and again, that Jesus is the savior of the world. I'm gonna read a lot of verses here and I'm trying to underscore for you that you would be able to underscore for others. I need a Savior, and I don't want anyone to be confused as to who your Savior is. Matthew 121, she will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. John 4, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. This woman who met Jesus, was saved, rescued from her sin, went back to her town and said, you got to come meet this Jesus. He told me everything I ever did. And he still accepted me. He didn't run. And the people in the town came out and they saw Jesus. This man is really the Savior of the world. 1 John chapter 4, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be what? The Savior of the world. One more, 1 Timothy, for there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. I'm a sinner. God is holy. I can't work my way to God, but Jesus, who is absolutely perfect and holy, can mediate between me and God, make me right with God, where I have peace with God. Jesus, this is now Jesus talking about himself, for the Son of Man came to seek and save that What was lost? Mark 10, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 26, we celebrate communion every week for this purpose. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many of the forgiveness of sins. Jesus hung out with sinners. Jesus built relationships with sinners. Jesus loved sinners. Why? Because that's who he came for. I came for the sick, he said, not the healthy. Jesus was accused of hanging out with prostitutes and hookers and drunkards and tax collectors. Jesus came to save sinners. I Think one of irony. On the cross, the religious people are mocking Jesus. And they said this, He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. The savior of the world, they were mocking, you can't even save yourself. They didn't know the irony of how true their mocking statement was. If Jesus would have leaped off that cross, there would be salvation for nobody. How true it was They mocked him, a savior who can't save himself. The only way for Jesus to save sinners was to sacrifice himself. They didn't know what they were asking and challenging him to do. This is what scripture says. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the father in our defense. Jesus, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only our sins, but also the sins of the whole world. 2 Corinthians, God made him who had no sin be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter, for Christ died for sins once for all that the righteous uh, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Romans 5, last one. You see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Have you ever had the thought, man, God seems really like cruel in the Old Testament. He seems like very vindictive. Like it just seems very wrathful in the Old Testament. But then God like turns a page in the New Testament. Like we get to see another part of his personality. He's he's very loving. He's very gracious. He's very merciful. And we get God confused. He's like mean and cruel and wrathful, and vengeful in the Old Testament, but he's all sweet. He's all kind in the New Testament. Is that true? Do we see God in one section of the Bible, first 39 chapters, this mean, vengeful, cruel God, but then we see in the next New Testament 27 chapters of wow, he is just very, very gracious. Jesus for you, for me, absorbed the full wrath of God when he went to the cross. Dare anyone ever think that God is somehow just this meek and mild and just kind of let sin go? Jesus on the cross absorbed all of the wrath of God so that you would never have to. So if you ever think that God is somehow inconsistent in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament, just look to the cross. It's an amazing thing when you look to the cross, when you see the wrath of God, meet the love of God. The consequences of sin meet peace and mercy and compassion. If you want to see salvation, you go to the cross. If you want to see love of God, go to the cross. If you want to see the justice of God, go to the cross. I don't want anyone ever to think that somehow New Testament, God is not wrathful towards sinners. He was wrathful towards his son on the cross so that you and I would never have to experience the wrath of God. Paul says this, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of who? I am the worst. Those who, like Paul, understand how sinful they are are the ones who savor the Savior the most. If you're wondering why Jesus is not increasing in your mind, in your heart, your love, your affection for him is just stale at best, not growing. It's not much different than it was last year. I wonder if it's because you haven't come to grips with just how horrific our sin is. Because when I come to grips with how sinful a sinner I am, the worst of all sinners, as Paul says, when I finally am broken by that, my eyes are open, not to my nakedness, but to the beauty of Jesus as the Savior of the world, the Savior of my sin. I want to finish up with um, one last question. And the question is, what does a saved person, a saved sinner, really look like? I've saved one person in my entire life, physically. I was. Uh, some of you know I was a swimmer. And I was 18 years old, and me and a couple buddies were uh, jumping off, uh, were bridge jumping. And one of the guys who was in our group, there was four of us. You'd jump off the bridge, it wasn't really too high, 20, 30 feet, jump down, and you had to swim about 75, 200 yards to the place where you could get up and walk around. One of the guys in our group was not that strong of a swimmer. Three of us made it back to the shore after the first jump. I looked out, and I see our fourth guy drowning like going down. I was the only swimmer in our group. And at first, you kind of look at this guy, and you're like, oh, he's just you know, kind of messing around. And... But after about five seconds, he was going under the water. It took me probably about a minute. Usually, if you're relatively at all a good swimmer, you could do about 75 to 100 yards in roughly about a minute. But in open water, one of the things that they teach you is keep your eyes on the one who's drowning. Because if he goes down, you have to spot where they went down so you can go and get them. So swimming with your head above water slows you down quite a bit. So you can imagine the blood, the adrenaline, lactic acid is just pouring through my body as I'm swimming out to this guy. And by the time that I got to him, all I could honestly see, and I'm not trying to exaggerate a story, was his hands flailing above the water. And so I grabbed him, I put him in the movie you're supposed to put him in, and dragged him back to shore interesting about that story i never talked to that guy again you would think you would think that he would be at my door every single day thank you so much you saved my life you think he would be showering me with something compliments or gifts or just something i never talked to that guy again i saw him at school about a week later he ignored me completely And I knew why he ignored me, because he was so embarrassed that he went under and someone else had to save him. And so he took his savior, small s, okay? Not thinking I'm a savior, small s, and he didn't want to even be around me. Because every time he would see me, it was a constant reminder. Someone had to help him. Someone had to save him. Some people will respond to the saving of the savior in a very prideful way. I don't need saving. I'm fine. I don't need you, Savior. That's one response. The question is, what does a saved sinner look like? I picture a saved sinner looks like one who just has gratitude overflowing from his very life. And gratitude shows up specifically in love, obedience, mission. I love how Paul says it says this in 2 Corinthians 5, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. There was something in Paul that said, he died for me, I'm gonna live for him. He died so that I can live not a life that is about me, but is a life that is about him. The love of God compelled him so much. The love of a Savior compelled him so much. He said, I'm not going to make this life about me. I'm going to make it about him. And Paul went to his death, his being martyred, making much of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus saved him. Gratitude shows up in love and obedience. It also shows up in repentance. Brendan Manning, uh, an author, uh, a favorite author of mine, says this, The saved sinner is prostrate in adoration, lost in wonder and praise. He knows repentance is not what we do in order to earn forgiveness. It is what we do because we have been forgiven. It serves as an expression of gratitude rather than an effort to earn forgiveness. Someone who has been saved, the love of God compels them to live life very differently. And it compels them to repent, not as a way to earn more of God, but as a way to express to God how thankful I am. I don't want to choose sin. I want to choose you. This Easter, I want you to really wrestle with that question. Have I met the Savior? Have I been saved of my sins? And if you answer yes to that question, some of us will answer it very quickly, I want you to ask this question, do you look like a sinner who's been saved? If you say yes to that question, I'm not trying to put doubt in your mind, well, maybe I didn't pray that prayer, maybe I didn't do this enough. It's not about what you do or don't do. Do you know Jesus? That's it. When I stand before God, Michael, who paid the penalty? I was a pastor, read my Bible every day, I prayed a lot, did some journaling, even though that's not a verse in the Bible, I thought it was a good idea, so I journaled. I did all of these things. Michael, did you know the Savior? That's the question. Do you know the Savior? Paul says this, and this just cuts my heart. He says, We are therefore Christ ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconcile to God. I just picture Paul begging the community, be reconciled to God. Sin has caused a division in your relationship with God. Be reconciled to him. Jesus is the one who reconciles you back to God. I see just tears and passion in his voice. Be reconciled to God. I'm begging you, if you have not been reconciled to God as Jesus is the one who saves you from sin today, be reconciled back to God. If you have done that, live as one who's been saved. Live as one who has been saved. This is another quote uh, from Mr. Manning. He said, This Christians ought to be celebrating constantly. We ought to be preoccupied with parties and banquets and feasts and merriment. We ought to give ourselves over to such celebrations of joy because we have been liberated from the fear of life and the fear of death. We ought to attract people to the church quite literally by the fun there is in being a Christian. There's going to be a lot of people this Easter week who are asking questions about spiritual things, about Jesus. Jesus always makes the cover of Time Magazine on Easter. He will be everywhere. People will be talking about him. If you are someone who has been saved and knows the Savior, live this week as one. Not just this week because it's Easter. Live every day. And when people ask, I'm saved. I know a Savior. I don't have the guilt, shame, insecurities. I'm not trying to cover myself with fig leaves anymore. I'm not hiding from God. I'm out there in the open because my God loves me. And he showed me how much he loved me in saving me from my sin. I'm going to just pray, invite the worship team uh, to come back up and... Do you know the Savior? he knows you and he knows your condition and knows that you need salvation. If you don't, it's the simple as saying, Jesus, I confess I've sinned and I confess that you are the one who saves me from my sin. Father God, if there is anyone in here who doesn't know you as Savior, I just pray, God, that that prayer, that confession would go from their heart from their heart and form in words through their mouth, confessing that they've sinned and confessing you, Jesus, as the one who is Savior. Father God, I know that there are maybe many of us who have made that confession, calling out, crying out to Jesus to be our Savior. God, I pray that we would no longer live our lives making much of ourselves. But we would live to make much of the one who saved us, the one who brought us into right relationship with you. Jesus, I pray even this Easter week as there will be many people in our families, many people in the places where we work. God, I pray that this week we would be courageous to say, I was once lost, but now I'm found. I know who my Savior is. God, I pray this would be a great week in our families' lives, our community's lives, of people coming to know you, Jesus, as Savior. Jesus, we give you thanks. We want to respond to you in worship. We want to respond to you in celebrating communion. So this morning, as we worship and as you are ready and prepared and led, come and celebrate communion, taking a piece of the bread, symbolizing Jesus' body. And dip it in the wine or the juice, symbolizing his blood that was shed, poured out, spilled for you. And say, thank you. Jesus, thank you for saving me. This is just for people who have confessed Jesus as Savior. Don't take communion if you're not a Christian. But if you became a Christian today, come and celebrate communion saying thank you to the Savior for saving you.